You are my there. Bring some sun back. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, our guests are Tanya Medini, Louisa Matiri, and a bit later, Neil Farrow and Matthew Roberts join us. But I do have Tanya Medini and Louisa Matiri, who have produced a fabulous film called The Moths Will Eat Them Up. Tanya and Louisa, welcome to the show. Hi, Hi James. Thank you. Lovely to be here. It's an extraordinary film. It's a confronting film. It's a short film that's been nominated for a swag of awards. Uh, <laughs> tell us all about it. Where do we start? Uh, maybe we start with where it came from. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, you, you wrote the film uh, after a pretty confronting experience on a train. It's set on a train uh, with an extraordinary acting performance by Lynn Cooper-Tang. Uh, tell, us, tell us about the experience that led to its creation. Okay, I, I was uh, travelling home at night uh, on a train from Brisbane into sort of a, a hinterland area, a couple of hours out of Brisbane. The guy got on the train, he started doing to me, I was the only woman in a carriage that probably had a scattering of other men in there, and he started uh, doing to me what happens on the train, which was, you know, staring at um, me and because I had to get off past him. So it was like he would come out of the toilet and wait to see if I, that was my stop. And I was getting concerned because my stop was coming up and it was a very small country station and no, I knew nobody else would be there. So as it was happening, the light was buzzing on and off when he'd go into the toilet. And I was thinking to myself, this is terrifying yet. I think this had actually made quite a good little film. Absolutely. And Louise, tell us the backstory about how you and Tanya got together to create it. Yeah, so the film was produced through the um, Train Queensland Ride Initiative, which is Sense of Respect, Inclusion, Diversity and Equality. Um, and Tanya and I actually didn't know each other at all before starting this process. And the exec producers on the project um, kind of paired us together. Tanya's script was chosen as part of the initiative and um, it needed a producer and uh, I came on board. I was invited to come on board um, as producer and co-director and Tanya and I kind of met pretty much the day before we started um, pre-production. So <laughs> basically met, got along and then just hit the ground running and it turned out really well and now we're you know, great friends and great collaborators. What an extraordinary collaboration. And, of course, uh, how amazing that you were able to work together so well without having that kind of history. You're both co-directors, uh, and it really is. It's a bit like a Stephen King film almost, isn't it? There's so much suspense and horror, and it's shot at night. Uh, it must have been a pretty intense experience. Yeah, the, the, shoot, was pretty, the shoot was pretty rough. It was the middle of July. June. No, it was July, and um, we shot in Ipswich, uh, kind of west of Brisbane, and it was freezing. Like I think it was like two degrees, um, and we did night shoots. We were shooting until kind of two, three a.m. So it was a phenomenal effort from the crew, really, to you know be out there and putting all that you know energy and commitment into making this film. So we're, we're so grateful to everyone who who is involved, really. Incredible acting performances from Lynn Cooper-Tang and Kevin Spink. Uh, tell us about them. Uh, we, we had uh, casting directors come on board and they gave a selection of people to choose from. And, of course, because the film has very limited dialogue, we really needed uh, the character of Rain that Lynn plays to show us everything that was going on in her head through her expression because she didn't really have any other way to do that apart from a tiny little bit of dialogue in the middle there. And the same with Kevin. He doesn't utter a word all the way through it. 
So, um, yeah, that's that's what we were we were keenly looking for, and somebody who had an understanding, people actors who had an understanding of what the um, that the subject matter of the film was, and uh, Kevin did, and Ling certainly did. So, yeah, they were they were our standout choices. Tell us about the moths theme and what inspired that choice, because you use moths so well through this film. Uh, I guess. Uh, I, I couldn't end the script the way it ended for me, which was very boring. I got off the train and went home. So um, I, I wanted to look for a protective symbol because, I, to me, the best protection women have against men's violence is other women because it's women who are out there running the services and, and supporting victim survivors. So the moth represents that. And uh, I needed a protective symbol. So when I started uh, Googling protective symbols, moss kept on coming up and I never realised that. So I thought, oh, that's super interesting. So uh, we went with moths and then we got a, an amazing VFX artist um, who, who brought the moths to life in a spectacular way. And it's been such a great film to, to, to be promoting during 16 Days of Activism, which has just, just finished, which really highlights violence towards women and, and says enough is enough and we have to stop this. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, I'm, I was very keen on highlighting the risk assessments that women do on a daily basis, wherever they are, whatever time of the day or night. We're not even conscious of doing it in a lot of cases, but we are doing it. So I wanted to highlight that and the fact that um, it'd be super helpful if all men... Either, not, we, we understand that, that not all men are perpetrators. We totally understand that. But, gee, it would be great if everybody spoke out against other men's violence. And there's an incredibly powerful moment in the, in the film when the, when the lead character approaches a man and says, look, this guy's behaving really scarily, and he was just so dismissive of her concerns. Yeah, absolutely. Completely dismissive and, and actually tells her to calm down in the end when she has a very valid situation going on there. So what kind of reaction has the film been getting from activist groups? Louisa, do you want to speak Oh, to that? yeah. I mean, it's, it's had a kind of amazing reaction all around um, from, I mean, just general audiences. You know, after every screening, we get women come up to us and tell us that they resonated so much with it, with the story and that experience and that the the way we told it was so truthful and the most amazing thing I guess and the best we could hope for in this kind of situation is we've also had men tell us after they've seen it that they their eyes have been opened, which is, you know, really incredible. Um and uh, we're really happy with that response and we are hoping to use I mean, Tanya just delivered a keynote and um play we played moths at a little festival in Brisbane, um, which was just a little festival for arts against gender based violence for Chrysalis and Micro Projects. And um yeah, it's hopefully we would love to, you know, start using this as an educational resource, you know, in schools or unis or wherever. Yeah, wherever it has a home. It sounds like it's been an incredibly empowering experience for you being the producer of this film. Mm. Yeah, no, it really, really has. It's, I mean, you kind of, you know, I, I've kind of said this so many times. You really don't go into making films with a like the intention of, you know, winning awards or getting all of this great success. You kind of, I mean, at least for me, and I know for Tanya, which is kind of why we fit well so well together. We just want to make the best. We just wanted to and want to continue to making the best film that we possibly can, and it's so rewarding 
to not just received, you know, um, a great response and a great reaction to the film as a piece of art, but also as a piece of art that has something to say and can hopefully invoke change. It is a beautifully crafted film. It is a great piece of art. Um, wow. I mean, what was the process like? I mean, you said it was freezing cold, it was at night, uh, you didn't have a big budget, but what what enabled you, do you think, to make this beautifully crafted film that is so, well, it's like a rich tapestry, really? You go, Louisa, you're right. No, there you go. <laughs> um, look, I think the commitment the commitment from the cast and crew was extraordinary and everybody was there giving 100% the entire time. We, we were really fortunate to um, get the exact model train that I was travelling on in my own personal experience. It had been recently decommissioned and we tracked it down quite, you know, not even knowing that we were going to track it down to um, a warehouse at the back of Ipswich and couldn't believe it when we got on board and it was, it was the same train. So we just shot on a, on a still train and trying to make it look as if it was moving was uh, completely, and it does look like it's moving, was completely attributable to the um, dedication of the, of the crew. It really does seem like it's moving. I mean, what a great journey for you guys as as, as directors. What's been, I mean, it must give you so much more confidence to make more films now. Yeah, I mean, this was, uh, this was my third short and it was <laughs> the most challenging one so far. Like, I think this is the first time I've been on the verge of genuinely giving up. But <laughs> that's kind of why it's been so rewarding. It just was so, so challenging with the resources and the budget, but... Um, that's kind of when the most exciting stuff happens. So that's why I didn't give up, <laughs> and I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> and you've been nominated for, for quite a few awards. Tell us about that. Um, we really didn't ex- go into this expecting to have such an amazing um, critical response, um, but we've we've been nominated, yeah, for... I mean, we won Sydney... Well, we won Sydney Film Festival Best Short Film and Best Director which was phenomenal. And then since then, we've been nominated for, um, you know, an Actor Award, um, AACTA Award for Best Short Film. And I, all of our kind of craftspeople, which has been amazing, have I've been nominated or won awards for their craft for Best Sound, um, Cinematography, Casting. Um, Tanya won an Augie, which is a, a Australian Writers Guild Award. So it's so incredible that it's not, it's now not just, you know, us as the, producer, directors, kind of, and writers getting recognition, but all of those technicians who put so much of their energy and love and blood, sweat and tears into this have been, you know, receiving recognition as well. And Tanya, what's next for you on the writing front? Uh, I've got a few projects on the agenda at the moment. So I've, I've got um, a film in... Uh, um, we're just wrapping up on the final draft for that, and it's about a young woman with disability who uses a wheelchair in a country town who gets it on with the local footy hero who's an able-bodied guy. Um, and that's uh, we've been working on that for a couple of years now. Also work, have optioned a, a novel, um, A Lifetime of Impossible Days, which was Queensland Book of the Year in 2020. So working on that as well as a dramedy series. So I got a little bit on at the moment. Wow, you sure do. And um and the and the production about the woman with the disability sounds yeah. incredibly fascinating and um a bit avant garde. I mean it sounds like you're not afraid to confront some some taboo issues. 
Most definitely. I'm, work, I'm working with a, a young woman who does use a wheelchair for mobility, um, and she, Stephanie Dower, and uh, we're writing that together, and she's producing it, and I'll be directing. And, yeah, she, she's, she's got a little bit to say about living in the world with disability, <laughs> so we're incorporating that into the story. And, uh, Louise, it sounds like you've got some pretty exciting things in the pipeline as well. Yeah, um, I guess the main one I'm um, working on at the moment is the feature adaptation of my previous short film, Pools, which is a, another regional story about a um, young woman from regional Queensland who finds out she's pregnant and then has to road trip from regional Queensland to Brisbane alongside her mother to terminate her pregnancy. Um, so, And that and you know, a couple of other projects that hopefully will be further developed and gain some traction over the next couple of years. Well, Tanya Medini and Louisa Martiri, you both should be very proud of The Moths Will Eat Them Up. It's a fabulous short film. It's a confronting short film. It's dramatic. It struck me as being a bit like a Stephen King film. Uh, and to produce it on such a small budget is quite amazing. If people want to see it, how can they? Um, I would say stay tuned for that. <laughs> um, we've just signed a distribution agreement um, middle of this year with a short film uh, sales agent in Berlin. So we are hoping we are starting to, now that our festival run has come to an end, starting to see it pop up in online platforms or KTV or um, all of that. So stay tuned. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Tanya and Louisa, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Thank you. Thanks, Jane. Thank you so much. Tanya Medini and Louisa Materi there, the co-directors of The Moths Will Eat Them Up. You are an In Your Face on 3CR and here's Moby.
You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, joined by political commentator Neil Farrow. Neil, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back, James. How have you been? I'm good, I'm good. Um, pretty kind of, you know, intently watching uh, the upper house results for the state election, which have just been confirmed. And of course, a few weeks ago, we were all watching the election, which some aspects of the media got so wrong in terms of the result. Uh, Neil, you're a political commentator. What are your thoughts on how the Andrews government was able to absorb a 6% swing uh, and still pick up a seat in the lower house? Look, I think it's a quite an interesting set of events that's caused a sort of primary swing and yet still an increase in seats. But sort of at a macro level, I think the opposition in Victoria is, is largely unelectable um, off the back of some really weird announcements in the lead-up to the election. You know, let's reintroduce fracking, let's reintroduce gay conversion therapy. Um, and I think while there sort of are a few issues and, and concerns across sort of a government that's now been in power for Victoria for eight years, I think the general public looked at the opportunities and, and the alternative and just said, hold on a second, do we really want gay conversion therapy and fracking front and centre in Victoria? And I think that's the way they voted, to be honest. It's like they're embracing some fringe candidates with some pretty wacky theories. And of course, uh, their partnership with the Herald Sun over the stairs and Dan Andrews kind of, I think, disgusted a lot of voters. Well, it also assumes that voters are less smart than they are. Like, I think it was a very sort of appeal to sort of a very lower, lowest common denominator sort of political campaign of, you know, going after some very weird and, and quite extreme sort of views and politics. And I think it's interesting, if you have a look at the, the final result, um, the Liberal Party actually lost three seats on the whole, and the Nats picked up three seats. So on the balance, the coalition remains the same. Um, but it's actually been a huge step back for the Liberal Party, like losing three more seats from what was considered the lowest possible electoral outcome four years ago is is a huge step in that space. So look I really need to think I really think they need to assess their policies and, and their direction and I think they also need to give the people of Victoria a little bit more respect and treat them a little bit smarter and recognise that we're pretty progressive on a lot of social issues in Victoria. Do you think they'll do that though, or do you think they'll kind of, you know, get embroiled in opposition wars? 
Look, it's quite an interesting one. I talked to a few um, mates and girlfriends and other bits and pieces who are involved with the Liberal Party, um, and a lot of them are almost of the inclination these days, and these aren't obviously MPs or members of Parliament, but of the inclination that it's possibly better for the Liberal Party to split so that the Conservatives can go off and form their own sort of crazy party of their own fruition, and and the Liberal Party can then sort of hold back the centre-right and the centre-field and and sort of aim for government again. But I'm not too sure. With that said, I think... um, the new opposition leader is uh, is a pretty smart, pretty reasonable guy, but the big difficulty he has is, you know, the Liberal Party spent years and years and years, decades almost, recruiting out of very far-right religious churches in Victoria, and the volume of candidates coming through from that side means that however centrist and smart the opposition leader is, they've got this fringe of right-wing crazies, or cookers, as I think the term is these days. Yeah, will he be able to hold the party together, and will he be able to hold the coalition together? I mean, will the Nats... Um, go their separate ways? Look, I think it's an interesting one. If I was leader of the Nats, and, and obviously the Lib and the National Party's had a close relationship in Victoria for a very long time, but if you have a look in Western Australia, for instance, the National Party has actually done better for itself being separated from the Liberal Party. Um, they've been able to campaign and advocate and, and sort of achieve more for their seats. And, and if you look back over the fact, I can't remember the exact numbers, but sort of over the past 25 years or something, you know, the coalition's been in power for only sort of four years or something like that in Victoria. And I don't quote me on that figures, but there's something around that. You know, is it actually better for the um, the, the National Party to go it alone and, and sort of do their own thing effectively? So it's, it's an interesting question to ask and only one that they can answer. But while ever we keep getting these loonies, many of which were elected uh, on the Liberal Party ticket this time round, I just don't think the people of Victoria will engage. On the LGBTIQ policy front, what can we expect from the Andrews government in the new term? Look, I think there's a couple of really telling things in the LGBTI space. The first thing is um, two LGBTI-identifying ministers will return to government or caucus and also return to the ministry, and I think that's a really positive step uh, for inclusion. Victoria has lagged behind a lot of states and territories for its LGBTI representation. So I think that's a really solid step forward. Um, I think the other second step forward is if you have a look at, um, I think it was Transgender Victoria did a sort of analysis of the policies, um, particularly in the trans space, and I think um, one of the intersex organisations has done a similar one as well. And Labor's policies kind of, on all counts, secured a tick in this regard um, leading up to this election. So I think there's been a, a lot of progressive movement in that area, and obviously we saw the announcements before the election of sort of events funds and LGBTI pride funds and sort of other bits and pieces in that space. I think in those couple of areas, it should be continuing to be sort of a a positive progressive step forward. Um, We also saw this time around across a number of political parties, a record number of LGBTI candidates running across Labor, um, the Greens, uh, the Liberal Party. um, I think even the Nats had a couple of LGBTI identifying candidates running. And while not many of them got elected, the first effort or the first step is always to get LGBTI candidates running. Um, And I think credit due to the Pride Lobby in Victoria, um, who were very active in trying to encourage, train, engage and and recruit LGBTI candidates. So they're the sort of three big steps forward I see in the LGBTI space. Um, The step back or or sort of the, the neutral step is we didn't actually elect any more um, LGBTI identifying candidates um, at scale to Parliament. Um, and so I think that's kind of an area we still need to focus on. But lots of positive step forward. Um, and obviously it's really great having uh, a lesbian identi- uh, an identify, uh, sorry, a person who identifies as a lesbian as Minister for Quali- Equality in Victoria, which is um, continuing sort of a really positive trajectory in that space. 
Some new queer faces from the minor parties. Of course, Gabrielle DeVitri for the Greens winning Richmond. Uh, Avi Bakuli uh, winning for the Greens for North Eastern Metro. And Rachel Payne uh, winning for the Legalised Cannabis Party. She's going to be a pretty interesting uh, force in the upper house, I think, and may well take up the mantle left behind by Fiona Patton. Yeah, and look, I think um, um, the biggest single loss this election in Victoria is actually Fiona Patton from the Upper House, someone who I and many people across all political colours regard exceptionally highly as a sort of a, a brilliant, values-driven, you know, really great person. Um, and I think that's a big loss. I think there is opportunity both for the Animal Justice Party, potentially the Legalised Cannabis Party, to sort of start to find some of the um, the expertise and, 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 and even brilliance that Fiona Patton had in the upper house. Um, and I think it will be interesting to have a more progressive-leaning upper house for a second term. Um, obviously, there's a number of key reforms in this next seat of par- in this next term of Parliament, though, that are up for review. So a lot of the, the big policies made under the first term of the Andrews Labor government from 2014 to 2018 often have sort of sunset clauses or review clauses in them, um, and we're probably due for a few of them this term of Parliament. So it's really important that we've got a, a generally progressive, uh, forward-looking upper house as well. Of course, Fiona Patton was defeated by former Labor Minister Adam Somurek, who uh, moved across to the DLP, controversial figure in the Labor Party. What are your internal sources telling you about him being back in the Parliament? I imagine there's a bit of bitterness about that, especially as Fiona had such a great relationship with the government and was so instrumental in progressive reforms getting up. Look, I absolutely think uh, everyone I've spoken to or mentioned has sort of um, preferred or requested or envisaged that um, Parliament would be infinitely better um, with Fiona taking that fifth seat, fifth seat in the northern metro region. Um, I think, uh, you know, it was a little bit unexpected and, and some of the stuff that I've heard um, about how the DLP was campaigning is in a lot of booths they were just handing out their brochures and saying, you know, Labor, Labor, Labor. So, you know, it begs the question, have they been riding off something that perhaps isn't theirs, their legacy to, to ride the wave of. Um, so I think that's that's a bit of a disappointment in that regard. Um, obviously, given my progressive stripes as well, a little bit of a disappointment that Victoria's elected a One Nation member to the Upper House as well. Um, that will be a little bit of a, a sort of a challenge. Um, but as I said, you know, the progressive crossbench made up, and I think the Legalised Cannabis Party will be a huge step in that regard, um, has sort of balanced that out to an extent. But, of course, it is a bit sad that Fiona is no longer in the upper house and, and you know, Adam Somirak, um has taken that fifth spot in Northern Metro. Does Daniel Andrews need to reform the upper house so we don't have those group tickets ticketing systems, uh, which give us some questionable results with parties that don't get much of a primary vote getting up? I mean, do we need upper house reform in Victoria? Sounds like we do. Look, I think it, it's probably something to consider this time round. Um, I've always been of the view, and, and maybe it's my interest in politics, but, you know, I don't vote above the line. I've always voted below the line. It's not that much effort. You know, we only have to vote every three or four years federally and at state level, um, and what is sort of 30 extra seconds of time. So, you know, at a very personal level, I think the best way to stop those sorts of things happening is to genuinely vote below the line. You know, I think I labelled half of the boxes below the line, but I think you only need to label five or six below the line for your vote to still be valid. So at an individual level, whether the reform happens or not, I'd really encourage people to start to vote below the line a little bit more. But notwithstanding that, I think the group voting tickets may have found their day. Um, But the other side of that is, um, and this has been covered across some of the media coverage, is there was some explosive kind of um, 
uh, crisscrossing and, and backstabbing that occurred across some of the group voting tickets this time round, some of, some of which potentially cost Fiona Patton her seat in the upper house as well. So, you know, there are arrangements between the preference whisper and conservative parties. There are meant to be arrangements between a progressive block of parties in the upper house. And there were some parties that sort of disregarded um, both the progressive block and the, the sort of conservative block and kind of fought off their own interests or, or fought for their own interests as well. So I think, you know, it'd be interesting to navigate that time round. But I think a lot of trust has been broken within the political parties through the group voting ticket process anyway, such that even if we hold the ticket in four years' time, I think it's going to be a much more volatile arrangement around preferencing. In terms of the government getting its agenda through the upper house, what's your analysis of the makeup of the upper house insofar as that pathway? Well, look, I think um, the Greens did pick up a couple of extra seats this time around. It's, it's, it's really important to note as well, on election night, we were sort of announcing a green slide, um, particularly from the Greens party, and, and I think they've only picked up a net of three extra seats. So, you know, it, it's not a huge green slide that they're anticipating, um, but I think the Greens will form part of the progressive um, crossbench in the upper house. I then think legalized, the legalised cannabis party will round that out and obviously having the continuation of the animal justice party. And that would be a combination of those three minor parties will probably be the easiest way to navigate legislation in the upper house. And you'll always find with the rest of the minor parties, I think it's the Liberal Democrat, uh, One Nation and Shooters, if I remember correctly, um, there's always arrangements where they may agree with the government on certain issues. Um, you know, I think in New South Wales, the shooters have been quite quite pragmatic with their views. I'm not necessarily saying I, I agree with their philosophy. Um, as someone who's never fired a gun in his life, you know, it's not my philosophy, but I think they can become pragmatic around policies and, and particularly some of the larger social policies that, as I said, will come up for review in this term of Parliament or, or for further um, consideration of Parliament. I do also hope fundamentally that the Legalised Cannabis Party will be able to make a dent around drug reform in Victoria. So, you know, we've got to be really serious. Tough on drugs has not worked. It's never worked. It's expensive and it's hurting too many Victorians. So I really think we do need to take the step in this next term of Parliament, which was championed by people like Fiona Patton and, to be honest, a lot of people within the Labor Party and actually look at what reforms are needed around our um, treatment and and processing of of drugs and and drug offences. And I think the ACT sets up a very clear trajectory for that, where the ACT's decriminalised um, a large number of drugs for personal consumption and use and, and regulates them accordingly. So there's sort of there's the 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 street map as to how you get there, courtesy of the ACT Labor government. I mean, I really do hope legalised cannabis steps up and, and, and agitates to secure that in this term of parliament as well. What do you make of Dan Andrews' response to legalising marijuana? I mean, he's dismissed it. He said straight out, no, even Bev MacArthur from the Liberals has said that she's got an open mind about it. Is Dan Andrews being too heavy-headed on this issue and a bit obstinate? Um, I think when you're leader of the party, and, and particularly when you've been leader of the party for sort of 12 years, um, you know, some of your views do become particularly entrenched. Um, and, you know, and, and sometimes that's a really good thing, you know, with um, Daniel Andrews' view around sort of a lot of equality issues and women's issues and law reform issues, you know, I think uh, holding your views and values um, sacrosanct has been really important as to how to navigate them through Parliament. On other areas, perhaps it's, it's perhaps time for a an evolution or a bit of a revolution of your views. And it's also recognising the fact that, um, you know, I don't think anybody, leader, opposition, government, you know, we are burning billions of dollars on the way we treat drugs and, and this war on drugs and, 
and being tough on drugs and all these other bits and pieces, all it has ended up with is a huge cost to taxpayers, you know, thousands and thousands of people in jail for what are offences that have hurt nobody else. Um, And at the same time, we're paying a huge amount for justice systems and clogging up our courts and, and all of the other consequences that come from an ideological policy that came out of the US in its era of conservatism under Reagan. So, you know, we've really got to look at where tough on drugs came from. It's not an Australian policy. It's an American Reagan right-wing Republican policy and and is, you know, in the era of Trump and, you know, their Republican extremism, is it a really good idea for Australia to replicate US policies around social reform such as drugs? And I think that's the question that still remains to be answered. Will Dan Andrews change his mind? Will the Cabinet reason with him and, and get a shift? I mean, he needs Rachel Payne's support in the upper house. You'd think he'd want a good working relationship with her and wouldn't want to dismiss her key policy issue, which she's got a mandate for. He wouldn't want to dismiss it so heavy-handedly, surely, to have a good working relationship with her? Yeah, look, I I definitely think it might be considered for a revision or, you know, it's another opportunity where if your personal views are so very strong on, you know, a tough on drug stance, then perhaps it's best to to leave caucus to have a conscience vote on this issue and and look at navigating it through through a private member's bill. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a government bill around decriminalisation, but I think, you know, allowing caucus and Labor Party members and the crossbench and the Liberal Party have a say on this will be really critical and and you know I think the the Liberal Party itself and, and holding an open mind in relation to drug reform they also realise that given the billions we're spending locking people up and, and criminalising very minor issues that perhaps even from their perspective tough on drugs hasn't worked so you know let's try and push for a conscience vote or a private members bill but let's also recognise that Victoria has voted for the legalised cannabis party for a number of seats in the upper house um, and that that should be an inclination as to where where we want our government to go, but also recognising that it is a couple of seats, and you know we do have a majority government, so it's a balancing act, I think. Neil Farrow, always great to get your insights on 3CR. Thanks for your time this afternoon. It's always great to be here, James. Hope you and all of the listeners and everybody here has a very great uh, festive break and, and New Year's, and look forward to speaking in the new year. Absolutely. Take care. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. Neil Farrow there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR, and here's Bob Dylan. When the rain is blowing in your face And the whole is on your case I could offer you a warm embrace To make you feel my Shadows and the stars appear And there is no one there to dry your tears I could hold you for a million years To make you feel my love
Bob Dylan there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Joined by Matthew Roberts in the studio from Sex Work Law Reform Victoria. Hello, hello. Hi, James. Good to be here in person. Great to see you. We've been talking about the state election. What's your analysis of the result from a sex work policy perspective? Overall, a very strong result. So we're pleased. Disappointed Fiona Pat was defeated, though. Yes, uh, I was really hoping that Fiona would would get back in again. It was always going to be tough, but um, unfortunately Fiona Patton did not retain her seat. She's been a champion of sex worker rights in Victoria. She ran the review out of her office. She was instrumental in convincing the government to enact law reform. It's a huge loss. It's a huge loss, not just for sex workers and for progressive law reform, but for all Victorians, uh, because Fiona Patton did not just talk about sex or sex workers. She was able to help introduce a wide range of legislation uh, that affected all Victorians. And of course, she wasn't just an an MP either. She goes back uh, as an LGBTIQ activist back in the AIDS and HIV era, sex worker rights. She she was running Eros, the adult industry association, for a long time. Background in fashion. I mean, she's got so many achievements that she brought to the parliament and it will be a huge loss. It's interesting you mentioned the Eros Foundation because Rachel Payne, who's been on this show, was the manager of the Eros Foundation, the office manager, and uh, was successful in the upper house for the legalised cannabis party. Will she continue Fiona's good work? Well, I know Rachel, and I'm certainly hoping that she will. I'm I'm confident that Rachel will do that. Eros somehow, with this new record, seems to be producing some, you know, great MPs. So Eros is all about sex positivity and sex workers' rights. So I'm really hoping that Rachel will um, take that bat on and continue the great effective work that Fiona did. What can we expect in relation to sex work reform in in the coming months and, well, really over the next 12 months? I mean, we've got that great planning legislation kicking in and we've got the second tract of the Andrews government's decriminalisation of sex work kicking in in December next year. Yeah, so James, we're in a really interesting period the next 12 months where we've got these significant changes in the law kicking in 12 months from now, both the planning level and the criminal laws being repealed. And so we're kind of like in a neutral transition phase. And the reason why I'm happy that Labor got in with such a majority is that we can feel secure that those changes won't be wound back straight away. Uh, Because I want the changes to have a chance to actually work on the ground and let's have a wait and see approach. Uh, but the other the other reason why I'm very pleased um, with how the new parliament has turned out is that there are quite a few new progressive voices. You mentioned Rachel Payne. We've also got Animal Justice Party getting in again. So I'm hoping that we can be secure in holding on to the gains that we've fought for so many decades to obtain. Well, yes, on the animal justice front, Georgie Purcell has been elected uh, for the Northern Victoria region for animal justice in the upper house, uh, a big supporter of sex workers. She certainly is. And um, I think Georgie was the chief of staff for four years to former MP with animal justice, Andy Medic. Uh, Georgie has also written publicly and quite touchingly about her experience in the sex industry and the judgment and stigma that she experienced when that became known. So I, it's clear to me as a 
fellow sex worker, Georgie, gets it. Her party gets it. And I have a lot of high hopes for what she'll be able to achieve on that crucial, crucial cross bench. So sex workers have got two strong women, two strong advocates for sex workers in the upper house, Rachel Payne and Georgie Purcell. You must, as you say, be feeling pretty chuffed about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I certainly am. And to be fair, James, it's not just lived experience that counts. I mean, there are some. there was an angry... Um, angry Victorians Party candidate who technically had sex work experience who wasn't on board. So we've got two people who have lived experience and they are supportive of of the rights-based agenda. I have high hopes, but it'll also depend on whether they can do what Fiona did, which is to um, be able to work with almost almost everybody and work constructively with the government to get those bills across. Fiona was unique because she was able to get the trust of Labor and work with virtually everybody. And her legacy is safe. There's no way the government's going to overturn that legislation. Uh, but your work at Sex Work Law Reform Victoria is going to be pretty interesting in 2023, working with local government in that planning space. Tell us about what your strategy is. Yes, so um, because there are, there are 79 individual councils across Victoria and we'll be communicating with all of them and generally trying to ease their anxiety about the changes. The changes won't really be a problem for residents or councils. Uh, there is a lot of anxiety, if I'm honest with you, and so we'll be talking about the experience of New South Wales, what the evidence shows, and saying, look, guys, this is not a big deal. It's going to be okay. You will survive sex workers gaining their rights. So what's their anxiety about? Is there this fear-mongering happening about sex workers, you know, running their businesses out of their homes? Well, that's one of the concerns, and I'm just taking this opportunity to plug our new YouTube channel, James. We have... Um, Sex Work Law Reform Victoria has a new YouTube channel that has videos of all these council meetings. The concerns are about it'll create more work for councils, it'll co- they'll have to pay more to monitor sex workers, and working from home will result in children being exposed to sex work and neighbours being terrorised and d- disrupted. Those are the general concerns. So spending more money on monitoring sex workers, I would have thought with decriminalisation they'd spend less. I mean, last time we chatted, you highlighted those investigators, private investigators nosing around sex workers. Um, I would have thought they'd be requiring less expenditure to monitor sex workers. Yes, you would think that. But their concern is that noise complaints will go up. We don't have any reason to believe that. New South Wales didn't um, experience extra noise complaints. That's bizarre. I mean, I always say to people, um, and I've tested this at home, when you, if your listeners are at home, take some cash and drop it loudly on the bedside table and see how much noise it makes. It's not very noisy. They're looking for, they're looking for things, surely. They're, they're making stuff up if they're saying that. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Well, look, I mean, I understand that when, when you don't understand the sex industry, you know, the, the stigma and the stereotypes can cause people to think that this is all a big, bad, dangerous industry. Of course, it's not. I'm a sex worker myself. I've been working in the suburbs legally for years without any incident. Uh, but it's going to be a mammoth task communicating um, to local government to explain that a lot of these fears are just not well-founded. 
So it sounds like Six Week Law Reform Victoria is going to be doing quite a bit of community education with some local councils because, let's face it, some are great. Not all of them are kind of, you know, banging on about noise. Uh, But it sounds like you've got to do a bit of community education and that's a lot for an organisation that's not funded. Yeah, look, it it is um, a lot of of work, you're right, Uh, particularly when you're dealing with people who... um, who struggle to understand the industry. So what we do is we've got a little list coming up of the most concerning councils, and we'll just focus at the pointy end and focus on where we think the need is greatest for councils to understand. Where is that need? Who are the, who are the ones that well, need a bit of support? Okay, I'm, I can confidently say that the council that will very easily top the list of worst councils will be City of Borondara, from Hawthorne to Camberwell. Uh, but there's a few other ones as well, Melton, uh, Mornington, Peninsula. So we'll, we'll be looking at addressing their concerns and helping them to better understand what to expect. What we've learnt um, through this process, James, is that for some reason there's a bit of a – local governments just and sex work don't really mix. It, it's a struggle and there's a lot of um, almost panic. So we're going to have to work with a lot of very anxious counsellors. Moral panic by the sounds of it. <laughs> yes, moral, moral panic is the type of panic it is, yes. But look, you know, to be fair, some councils are saying to Sex Work Law Reform Victoria, I have heard, how can we get off your naughty list? Yes, and that was partly from, from, what, from our last interview. I was contacted by a number of councillors who listened to the interview they became aware of it, and they were desperate to get off our naughty list. So we'll be talking to them about how they can do just that. So there are some good councils. Let's give them a bit of a break. Who are they? Well, there's only really one good council I can say so only far. Only one on sex yes. work policy in Victoria. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, I mean, publicly what they do, and that will be City of Port Phillip, which of course encompasses St Kilda, and they're doing some um, some great work. But that's one out of 79. Look, I would have thought Yarra and Moreland would have been a bit better, especially when they, you know, want to show off their progressive credentials. Uh, and let's face it, Yarra's been a bit bruised by being on the wrong end of the sex worker debate in the past. Um, the Greens have been on the wrong end of that. I think all political parties at some point have been. I would have thought they would have wanted to be in your good books uh, because clearly a lot of voters don't have a problem with sex work. I think the voters are ahead of politics in this area. Voters have largely, you know, we're okay with it. It's the councillors and the politicians that really need to get on board. And what I've learnt, James, through all this lobbying over these years, over the last five years, is that you really can't predict who's going to get the sex work issue. Some left-leaning politicians in the Greens or Labor, who you might expect to be supportive, are not. And we've also found equally that there were some Liberal Party and Nationals uh, people who were very supportive when you might not expect them to. So you cannot assume that any MP will understand sex work. If they haven't got to know people in the industry, you need to work with them one-on-one to help them to understand how the industry actually works. What are your hopes for the Liberal Party when it comes to sex work in this next term of government? Well, I was thinking about this question. I hope that the Liberals uh, are able to be, humble themselves and learn and change from the election result because they did so poorly. And one of the ways that they can learn, James, 
just some free advice to the Liberal Party here, is if they actually recognise that supporting sex workers is completely consistent with their own agenda of small business rights, individual choice and freedom. So if if we could see the Liberal Party embracing the sex worker rights agenda, I think that would signal to all Victorians that they're they're becoming a secular, modern party, which is what I suspect most Victorians want. What does the Labor Party need to do for supporting sex workers? I know they've funded the Vixen Collective, but what do they need to do on that funding level to more broadly support sex workers? Yeah, so we want to see funding of both groups and um, government agencies continue because rolling out these changes will require lots of education and support. So we'd like to see that continuing. Any you know, not-for-profit group will tell you that there's never enough money. You know, community legal centres are all underfunded. So we could always do um, with more money. And what we'll be arguing is that these changes in the law need to be supported by programs and education that you've referred to and that that needs to be continued on into the future to be sustainable and to lock in those gains. Matthew Roberts, always great to see you at 3CR uh, and thanks for sharing your insights from a policy perspective and law reform perspective and for giving some political advice from Sex Work Law Reform <laughs> Victoria. Thank you so much, James. You are in your face on 3CR. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave, but taking us out is Lauren Hill and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. One day, I'm going to understand.
Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex, and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs> 